This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hello, everyone. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and welcome to season two of Coaches Clubhouse. Loyal listeners will remember that in season one, we talked to coaches from all different sports about why they love to coach and what drives them off the field. For this season, we're doing something different. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the cascading shutdowns that hit all of sports and when the COVID-19 pandemic became reality for much of the country. We'll be talking to coaches from all over the sports world about what they were feeling when their sports shut down and how they dealt with the aftermath over the next year. There's no better place to start than in the NBA. It was, after all, Utah Jazz star Rudy Gobert's positive test on March 11th, 2020, that stands out as maybe the moment. It triggered an NBA shutdown, the first of many dominoes to fall. The Jazz and the team they were playing that night, the Oklahoma City Thunder, get most of the attention from that day. But the team they played two days prior, the Toronto Raptors, also had a panic night. I was able to talk to Raptors coach Nick Nurse in October, right after the closing of the successful NBA bubble, about that night, what came after, the experience in the bubble, and his book about leadership, Rapture, 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere. Here is my conversation with Nick Nurse. Where were you when sports started to shut down and, and what, who told you, what was your reaction? I mean, we barely knew anything about COVID at that point. Man, I was, um, I was at a kickoff dinner from my own foundation we were just starting the Nick Nurse Foundation here in Toronto. And um, it was literally the opening night, the kickoff dinner. It was a night of music. And uh, I'd had a, a few guest performers on, John Vinyl, Daniel Caesar. Um, I play a little music myself. And I was just getting ready to take the stage with Canadian rock band, the Arkells, when the tweet came out that Rudy Gobert tested positive. So. Um, we went up on stage and knocked out five or six songs and then we came back and then it was like um, the NBA was talking, uh, you know, shutting down the season. So we, we immediately, I actually went from that event straight to the hospital with a number of my staff and players who were at the event to get tested because they, um, we played Utah. We just flew in from Utah and we went straight to the hospital to get tested and then back home to quarantine. I remember seeing that tweet, seeing everything kind of you know, from afar. And it was just, it was just so wild and, and no one knew what was happening. Um, I mean, as someone, you, you just played them, you're, you're not sure. I mean, people didn't really have tests at that point. Like it was just, it was so chaotic. Um, are you worried, stressed? Like, do you, like, what was that night and, and those 24 hours like? Well, I think 
that at that point, I mean, I think everybody, not not only, I mean, everybody was expecting like, um, I don't know, half the Utah Jazz to have it, half of our team to have it, the referees, the you know, everybody that was anywhere near them to have it, right? So, yeah, we were worried. We were anxiously awaiting our test results. I remember, you know, the, our team uh, physician, you know, you know, texting or emailing and saying, hey, we don't have the results yet, but I'm keeping you posted, you know, every few hours. And um, so, yeah, it was pretty tense and, and intense as well, trying to get those results back. It's it's funny that you were doing something you love when this was all like unfolding, right? Like it's it's almost like that the idea of live music now is something that I'm like, I don't know the next time I'll go see a concert or, you know, be in a crowd of people um, looking back, like is 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 there a little bit of like, well, at least I had that, you know, that last set, <laughs> those last <laughs> couple of songs um, before, again, the world changed? Well, I think a lot of us that were there that night talk about it a lot saying, geez, that's like the, still the last night we've gotten together or we've been able to like go out and enjoy ourselves, you know, it was a nice dinner and, you know, all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, boy, that's a, that's a, makes you think, uh, well, from my foundation standpoint, I sit here and think, man, that was an awesome event and I can't wait to do it again, but when will we when we'll be able to do events like that again where we're you know like you said live music and in crowds and out dancing and all that stuff hopefully soon right hopefully soon so after um you know the nba shuts down what are your next days and weeks like well just trying to absorb it all really right i think um from my standpoint, I was just trying to let the players breathe a little bit because it was shocking news and a, certainly a huge disruption to everybody's lives. And I think there's some emotional um, turmoil or state of being that we need to let them kind of absorb before you're trying to tell them, hey, this is going to happen or it's going to be three months or it's going to be, you know, we really didn't have any answers. So I, at, at first, I was just trying to let everybody get over the shock of the situation. Um, and then, you know, closely in touch with the leaders of our organization, the leaders of our team um, about what's going to happen next and trying to convey as much of that information on to the team as possible as we could, because things were changing daily, as you know. Uh, I, I obviously now it's hard to think back about March and April, but it, it took a little while for like the bubble to be formed and, and kind of the plans for the NBA restart. Um, what were you doing? Were you, were you playing music? Like what, what were you doing? You know, when, when you do have all of this, you know, unplanned time, you know, when you're trying to take your mind off of stuff. <laughs> well, I would like to say there wasn't much to do, but I, I, looking back on that, I remember being really busy. The, 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 um, craze and fascination of zoom calls, uh, joined joined our world and <laughs> it seemed like we were on a zoom call i was on i was on six six seven zoom calls a day one after another it was like it was like a hard day at the office uh <laughs> staying Surprise, in surprisingly my, in my, tiring to like yeah. have to be on on a yeah. zoom call yes yeah that's right but uh just you know really just um planning helping plan trying to trying to help people make decisions trying to throw out ideas trying to get some logistics in place and and, you know, um, move with the flow of what the news was, you know? So um, I, I know you've been working on your book as well. Was that done at this point? Or were you like, all right, like some of these meetings are about working on your book? 
Yeah, it was it was pretty much done, right? There's there's always uh, little things to tie up. You know, you have to uh, you get the forward and and uh, luckily Phil Jackson agreed to do that and and uh, write the acknowledgments. We we wrote a little you know a little prologue about current situation and and things like that too. So you were adding a little bit, and then there's there's a moving the date. You know, we had planned on bringing it out in June but the season kept getting pushed back and we didn't feel like the timing was very good then to do it. So, um, but there was a drop dead date when you got to get everything turned in, not, not unlike a, an assignment back in college and, and uh, just tidied up some of that stuff and go to print. So when you're working on a, on a book like that and telling your story and kind of reflecting on all of these different levels of basketball you've coached, and then, you know, obviously, you know, the success with the Raptors, um, what, what, like, I'm sure when you're living it, you're not taking stock of all those things. Right. But like, when you take that step back, what, what stood out to you about your own career and your own path? Well, um, when you, when you do kind of go back and go through it all, um, and you're thinking about when you coached, um, the Birmingham bullets, you know, you're 26, 27 years old, how much you loved that job, you know, you weren't making any money and, you know, you're driving, you're driving in minivans to games and they're breaking down and there, you know, there's all kinds of uh, hardships that you don't have now. Um, but you loved them, you know, and remember how hard we worked and how much winning those games meant and how much kind of sweat equity we were pouring into those, not only just to, to get through the season, um, promote the games, hope, hope, try to get people to come and watch the games, uh, uh, and just trying to get better at your, at your craft. I think that's the thing. Love, loved each and every job. And at each and every job, I was working really hard to try and improve myself as a coach. Do you think, I mean, obviously there's a zillion different ways to get to becoming a head coach in the NBA. And there are people who, you know, star player, you know, becomes an assistant and we're kind of a coach on the court or whatever it might be. What do you think about your path like allows you to connect with your players or like the, the I'm sure like just the all the entirety and the variety of the experiences um helps with all different types of roles that different players play on a team. Well, I'm not I'm not so sure that uh, like like you mentioned there's a lot of ways to you know a lot of different um stories, right, or paths that that people become NBA head coaches. Um, I don't think any of them are right or wrong. They're just different. Right. And I think the players, what they really want, uh, how do you connect with them is if they think you can help them not only individually, but be successful as a team, put them in, put them in a situation where they're able to succeed, give them good game plans, help in their player development. Um, and I don't, I think is if you're doing that, then you're going to have a chance of being successful as an NBA coach or a coach at any level. What is it like, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of player movement in the NBA um, and then there's certain teams or cores that have played together for a number of years. Like what is, how, how do you describe like your, your core, your guys, and just the familiarity and the relationships that have existed over a period of time? Well, I always say we have a lot of really special players, right? And it starts with Kyle Lowry. He's been here the longest. We, he came in about a half a season, I think, or a season before I did. So 
um, seven years we've just completed together. And I always say that he plays harder than anybody I've ever seen anywhere. I don't know what higher compliment I could give a player, right? The, the effort he puts out there physically and mentally to lead the team, to inspire the team, makes him special. Um, Fred Van Fleet's very similar undrafted player to NBA Finals star Pascal Siakam, late first round draft pick, Norman Powell, second round pick, um, Serge Ibaka from where he came from in Africa uh, to where he is today. Uh, these, there's some specialists to these guys, Mark Gasol. There's, there's a lot of special players on the team. I think that the makeup of toughness, IQ, chemistry, understanding roles, I think are what make them, make them special as a group though. As someone who, um, I was the lead college basketball writer for USA Today for six years and loved Fred Van Vliet in college. Like he was such a quintessential college star. And yeah. it's so cool to see someone like that become an NBA star, like a worldwide star. And also his daughter, adorable. But like, it's just so cool to see that when it is someone who, like you said, like this undrafted guy who just, you know, again, going to Wichita State and not a Duke and like all of the, his whole path. And, and it just feels like all, all those guys you mentioned have these great stories about how their, you know, their hard work, their effort, just like the grind, like which is so overused in sports, but like it actually played out on this team. Yeah. And it's it's special because it doesn't happen all that often. Right. Usually it's, uh, you know, a team with a bunch of lottery picks. I mean, think about it. The Raptors were the first team to win the title that had no lottery picks on their team. Right. And um, so that's kind of alluding to your point. But, you know, the thing that like amazes me and you, you covered Fred before, but like you see him get the ball and he's coming down the floor and he sees a. Uh, I don't know, a 6'10 guy waiting at the rim for him. And somehow he takes him on and leans into him. And and uh, I don't know how he does it. I've never seen a guy of his size be Fearless. able to score over much bigger players so consistently. And I wish I could, I wish I knew the secret because so I could teach it to other players. But I think, <laughs> again, it's a specialness that somehow Fred has figured it out, you know. So what was it like, um, like going into the bubble? Because, I, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot now that the playoffs have ended, just the, the sacrifice um, and to just mentally go through something like that. Um, and obviously I think it's different, you know, like there were reporters and obviously some of the teams that were there for like a hundred days straight, but in your experience, like mentally going in, was it, were, were you ready for it? Well, I think so. I think that, listen, I we were certainly um, thrilled to be able to go back to work, right? I think I think we saw the importance of of completing the season, being able to work, um, being able to provide the world with some positivity. Uh, again, I, I can't say enough about the NBA and the powers that be for creating uh, a safe environment. And then one that was kind of cool. I, I looked cool and presented, looked great on TV. The games were high level. We had a great finals. We had a great playoff run. Even some of the series we were so intriguing. I think, I think um, that's what it's really all about. Right. And I think um, we went into it to answer your question. We went into it and say, Hey, we got a shot here. You know, we're one of half a dozen teams that have a shot here. You know, giving out that big Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of it. So let's go, let's go down there and try to play, you know? 
So what did, I mean, obviously from home, like we got very used to the virtual fans and, you know, and the noise and, and, and really like it, it felt and looked normal, except just a weird time of the year. But like, did it feel like a scrimmage? Like, what did it feel like in the games? It felt pretty normal, Nicole. It did. It was like um, the first few games were weird because they didn't have all that stuff running yet. Right. That felt really strange and quiet and like disjointed and whatever. But once the once the fans came and they, I mean, I don't. They were really smart because again, like the way that was the lighting and how it was set up and the virtual fans and the noise and stuff really kind of encapsulated even when you were there live. So it, it became a lot like being in a, in a real game. Did it, did, did guys like, was there, I'm picturing this like camp atmosphere, right? Where like everyone's being tested. Everyone's like literally in a bubble together and guys are friends with guys on other teams. Like, was there that crossover, like camaraderie? Like what was it like kind of, you know, not just as your team, but like the whole league that was there? Um, I think there was this kind of weird combination of stuff. I think obviously, as you, as you just mentioned, there's certainly a lot of friends competing against each other or knowing each other or, or whatever. So there was certainly some camaraderie and hanging out a bit, but then there was this kind of weird vibe of, we're not used to seeing the guys that were playing every day. And, and, uh, you know, like, I, I know it was strange for me. I didn't, I mean, in the Celtics series, I didn't like bumping into Brad Stevens four times a day. I mean, I like Brad a lot. You know, You're I mean, just like, I don't guy. want to see He's you right guy, now. I, I just didn't want to get my mind right. You know, you know what I'm saying? And go, hey, Brad, how's it going? How was breakfast? You know, <laughs> really like, wasn't really like my mindset I wanted to be in, you know. So, um, but that's just me. <laughs> that, that actually gets me thinking like, is was the pre game ritual? I know coaches have, you know, particular methodology or just like routines like was that different there uh yeah I mean the whole thing with um kind of kneeling side by side with the anthems and all that stuff I mean listen normally uh Nicole you barely get to see anybody you know you literally you, yeah I mean as you know you you fly into a city you head to the arena you, your bus drives right in you go put your suit on and you you come in one way, they come in another, the game starts and you go out your separate ways and you're on a plane going to another city. There's, you know, there's a wave, there's a wave at the end of the game. Hey, yeah. good job. And that's, that's the extent of it. And that goes on at a fast pace, you know, all year long. And it was so totally different in the bubble. That's for sure. Um, what was, uh, what were you able to do? Like, did you bring books? Did you bring your guitar? Like, what did you, what else did you do there? Well, I tried to um, hunker, you know, we knew we were going to be hunkered down in the same room and I tried to get virtually everything I thought I could possibly need to pass the time and, and be comfortable in my room. I had a guitar, I had the keyboard, I, I had several books. I was, people sent me a few books and I was lucky that way. Um, I even had a little putting green in there. <laughs> oh, really? Play. That's awesome. I had, small section. I, had, I had dumbbells for a gym. I had an exercise bike. I mean, it was nice. actually pretty nice. I had, I had, you know, every just about everything I could possibly want uh, in my room. But I think everybody was trying to do that, you know, to keep from, well, to keep it moving. Let's put it that way. There were some long days, a lot of groundhog days, you know. Yeah. It, it, so I'm curious about 
music in your life. Um, you know, you've, you've mentioned it, obviously it's, it's part of your life was, when did it become a love of yours? And, and, you know, I mean, obviously people are talented at multiple things, but it's still kind of rare to have something like that. Someone's so passionate about like as a coach and, and to really have something that maybe it takes your mind away from it. Maybe it balances out your life. I don't, I don't know how it feels for you, but like, when did, when did guitar keyboard, when did these things come into your life? Well, my mother's side of the family is incredibly musical. So there's some, there's some in my blood there. Um, she, I was one of those kids that my mother forced me onto piano lessons for a couple of years. And I, I also had that, but was not very good at it. Me either. Right. I, I hate it. I, I wanted to be outside shooting hoops or playing baseball or whatever. Uh, the last place I want, I think I only played at the lessons for about three years and we finally called it quits. Right. So, but then funny as life is, it turns around and I'm taking lessons now, you know? So, um, I don't know. I've, I love music. I love listening. I loved going to live shows and start messing around playing a little bit and caught on. And then I, I, um, grabbed a guitar and decided I wanted to learn that. And then I started thinking that it was helping me, you know, they say that like learning languages or learning music helps your creative side of your, your mind. And, um, I thought uh, I wanted to keep some creativity going in my coaching. So I almost forced myself to take the lessons and continue to learn, but I do love it. And like you mentioned too, it is a great stress reliever. And I just, it's just fun for me. I'm not, I'm not that musical or much of a musician, but I like to, play a few chords and sing along on both instruments. Just some of us can't do that. So I've always been, I've always been jealous of people who could, you know, who can like walk into karaoke and actually sing the songs. Like I'm like, let's do it at 2 AM when no one's really listening. You know, that's, that's my level of karaoke and music. Um, so what, uh, who do you like? Like what groups, what musicians? Uh, well, you know, I'm going to give you the answer. I like a little bit of everything. It depends on what mood I'm in. Um, I like well, a lot of a very, that's coach speak, you know, like, yeah, no, I like a lot. Of, I like, um, um, fascinated with a lot of the old blues artists. Uh, I like a lot of jazz. I mean, listen, I've, I've got a lot of people. I'm, I'm fans of Clapton, Dylan, Prince, uh, Michael Jackson. Um, you know, I could go a lot of places. Thelonious Monk is a great jet. My favorite jazz Chet Baker, another great jazz trumpet player, Muddy Waters in the Blues, B.B. King. Um, there you go. There's a little rundown of some of my top artists. John Prine, I love. A uh, lot, of, lot of older, showing my age now, sorry. Does, um, do you send, you know, you mentioned like, you know, you hear it helps creativity. How, how does it impact your coaching? I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, keeps me coming up with new ideas and new schemes and new, new, new drills and new plays and whatever. I think that, um, you know, sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and come up with a thought and I think, where did that come from? And rightly or wrongly, maybe it's because I'm pushing myself to, to play music. So when, when you come out of um, just a totally weird NBA season, like, I mean, every sport right now, no matter what happens, coming out of 2020 will be strange. Um, when you look back on it and, and you know, in, you, in what you guys endured and obviously didn't end the way that you guys wanted to, but like, wh- how, do you, how do you take something from that season? Like, what, do you, what is the... I don't know if it's mood, vibe, energy level, or like how you approach the off season after a strange season like that. And I know it's short and it's going to be strange too. 
Um, but like, how, how do you approach that coming out of again that year? Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think um, it much different than normal, right? You you pissed off, you got beat, you dig in and you dig in and um, go to work, right? Um, you try to get better. There's some motivation there. Um, you get into your off-season player development. You get into your off-season coaches development. Um, and you try to get to work and improve the team. That was my conversation with Nick Nurse. You can find every episode of Coaches Clubhouse on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next Wednesday as we get ready for March Madness with Baylor men's basketball coach Scott Drew. Serious XM Podcasts.